Welcome to Hot Off the Press, a podcast that provides knowledge and emotional support for new and aspiring printers. I'm Jillian of Studio Soprano. And I'm Mariah of Mariah Creates, and we are two letterpress printers who believe in sharing our knowledge and learning together. We're here to help bridge the gap between antique printing methods and modern design. So hang up your apron, put down those palette knives, and let's get into what's hot off the press. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Hot Off the Press. I am Mariah of Mariah Creates, and I'm here with my printing bestie, Jillian of Studio Soprano. And today, we are so honored to be joined by a woman who is carving and casting her own legacy in the print industry, Val Lucas from Bowerbox Press. Um, Val, so great to have you. So excited to talk with you and to hear more about something that we don't um, hear enough about, I don't think, in letterpress at the moment. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about it. Yay. Val, when did you, like, when did your whole printing journey start? Did it start with casting or did it start with printing? It started with printing. So I took a letterpress class my very last semester when I was at the Maryland Institute College of Art. So that would have been in 2005, I think. I was doing some other types of printmaking, like uh, linoleum carving, which at that point I hated, screen printing, lithography, and the last semester I signed up for a broadside class. And when I walked in the print room and started pulling out all these little drawers of little tiny pieces, I was just like, ooh, what's this? This is so exciting, I like this. And I didn't consider myself that much of a writer, but just the processes involved with being able to do a linoleum image and have the press printed for you, being able to make multiples really easily being able to add that handset type with all these little tedious, tiny things that need to be put together. It just spoke to me and I was hooked from that instant. I graduated in May and in August, I dragged home a Colts Armbury press. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. We actually just recently learned about the Colts Armory press um, while we were at the print museum here in Los Angeles. And that is a very fine machine to have. Yeah, so that was the first one I got uh, of my own. I learned on Vandercooks, and then I go home and drag this beast out of a basement in Baltimore (laughs) and completely fixed it up. It works okay. It's got some quirks, but I use it mostly for die cutting now. Yeah. That was was my first baby, and I haven't stopped. I think I have 12 presses now. Amazing. Wow. What's What's your most, like, most used press? What do you use the most often? Definitely the Vandercook. I have a universal one and it's just so easy. Uh, So I use that for most of my commercial work, for my posters, because it can print a little larger. And then I have a small CMP that I do a lot of coasters and scoring and small printing on. Yeah, that sounds, I think that's kind of the common, um, the common setup, right? If you have kind of all, all of the different types, most people do like the Vandercook is just a breeze to set up and get going and register and all of that. So I, I totally understand uh, understand that perspective. I think um, Mary Bruno here in, in Minnesota has got a similar setup, and she definitely is the same way. Like, Vandercook is majority, but definitely the, the bigger jobs go onto the CNP and the even bigger jobs onto the Heidelberg. So we all get to – it's nice when you get to have your different equipment for different types of things, I think. <laughs> yeah, each press does something a little bit better. So the yeah. Colts is great. If I need to die-cut chipboard – it's going to go on the Colts. If I need to register a three-color wedding invitation, it's going on the Vandercook. 
That's awesome. <clears throat> yeah, that is amazing. And do you have all 12 of those presses in one studio or are they kind of like split up? Right now they're split a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. They're not all in working condition. Some I'm looking to pass on to other people. Um, luckily, my mother is kind enough to let me keep some things here at her house. Uh, so that's where the big Colts is. And then the rest is in my very small 300 square foot studio in Moncton. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I know that life um, very much have like all, all of my business is kind of split between different spaces because, you know, the when you come across a press, it is almost impossible to not say yes to taking it in. It's like people who, you know, love to foster dogs and they just like foster like 10 dogs at one time. <laughs> it's like if you hear of a press and it's accessible to you and whether you could use it or not, it's like it's so hard to say no to taking it in. Yeah, and that's really how I got a lot of my presses. They were either free or very low price, but they needed some work. So I've done a lot of work restoring them as well. And that makes it even harder to say no to a press because you're like, oh, I could fix it up and maybe sell it or pass it on to someone. And very hard to say no to anything, especially now <laughs> type too. I'm like, yeah, I'll take any type that you want to give me. So. <laughs> yeah, what is your current type collection like? Do you know approximately how much you have? Uh, I don't have a good count, but I have three full-size California case cabinets. Um, I've got a smaller two-thirds cabinet. Those are all full of metal type. I've got a lot of packages of type that are tied up. I have probably 50 or 60 fonts of wood type. And then I have all the type that I've been casting. And that's piling up mostly uh, to be finished and sent out and sold to people. Uh, there's a considerable amount I'm keeping for myself. I do want to be able to cast the type that I cast. I want to be able to use it to print like a full page. I'm doing a lot of ornamental work and I want to be able to do large things with that on the Vandercook. So there will be a lot that I keep, but there's a lot that's in process. It'll be going out someday. <laughs> Amazing. And what, so what was the journey like going from printing, buying that first Colts and then getting into typecasting? Uh, my business and my journey has kind of evolved quite a bit. So that first class I took at MICA, right after that, I started working at a stationery store and was learning about the wedding in industry, doing wedding invitations. I did a couple jobs on the cults. It was pretty difficult. I look back at them and cringe. But, you know, I'm thinking I can start this business. I can print cards. I can print custom work for people, business cards, invitations. Then I went to the stationery show a couple of times with a line of woodcut greeting cards, kind of bombed on that. So for a while I was like, oh, I'll do greeting cards. And then I was like, no, I, this doesn't work with my style. It's not what I want to do. Moved more into doing some poster work. And now I'm doing a mix of my own personal work, which is woodcuts combined with the handset type, wood type, some book work, which I'd like to get more into. And then still some commercial work for people on the side. I have some clients that come back for business cards. I work with a couple designers, so they'll work with the brides and then I just get to print, which is really nice. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> and the casting has really just happened in the last two years. Um, so that's been kind of a callback to my very earliest printing. I 
met a bunch of people in the Washington, Baltimore area who are part of the American Printing History Association. Uh, it's called the Chesapeake Chapter. So they're all kind of in the DC, Baltimore area. And through them, they really helped me out, get started. They were like, oh, you're the one with the cults. Like, oh, what else do you need? We can help you get set up. We can help teach you. Because I really only had a semester of, here's how to use a Vandercook. We worked a lot with plates. So I didn't know a lot of the basics. And this group of people, mostly older men um, who'd done it as a hobby their entire lives, they really helped me out. And they introduced me to Jim Walzak, who at the time was living in um, Oxon Hill, Maryland, across from Alexandria. So one day, one of them took me down there and Jim was out in his foundry casting type. And he's got this big machine set up. It's kind of smoky and there's little letters marching off the machine. And I thought it was pretty cool. I got to help take off the new type and put it in boxes. And I was just, I didn't recognize at that point how important that was. Uh, I hadn't gotten far enough into it yet to know that this is how things are going to continue if people want to keep using handmade type in the metal type instead of just switching to completely polymer or other plates. Yeah. Right. So he was part of a group called the American Typecasting Fellowship, and that's a loose association of people in the U.S. and abroad who are still making type. And I kept in touch with him. He moved up to Massachusetts, and I was always kind of oh, how's Jim? Hope Jim's doing great. I'd send him holiday cards. I met some other people who were doing type. I visited M&H out in San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, one of the only commercial type foundries still operating. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is cool. It'd be awesome to try this someday. And in 2019, I had the opportunity to do that at the Wells Summer Institute up at Wells College. So I took a week-long workshop there with the Bixlers, uh, Mike and Winnie Bixler. And they were one of the largest compositors. So they would set type for people. They would send out the set type. The book would be printed. The type would come back and they would reuse it for the next project. Wild. So they did, you know, dictionaries, huge books, huge projects. And I got to spend a week with them learning how to use the monotype composition caster and the supercaster, which makes larger type. And I just instantly was like, oh, this is really awesome. I need to learn how to do this. So I was supposed to go back the following year. We all know what happened in 2020. Yep. <laughs> so I did not get a chance to go back and, and assist at their class, but I reached out to Jim, uh, who is now in Massachusetts and said, Hey, you know, I've really enjoyed learning how to do this. I know you cast type. Would you be willing to teach me a little bit more? Could I come up and visit? And he was like, sure, of course, come up. So I think it was August of 2021 that I went up there to visit him for about a week. And we spent a few days casting a font of 12 point Kennerly for me to use for a specific project. And then he just asked, do you want to make your own type? And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean I can make my own type? <laughs> and he took me down to the basement. He has this little engraving machine uh, that belonged to Paul Hayden Dunsing, who was another type caster. It is a pantograph machine, so you can put a pattern on one side that's larger and then move the tracer, and that moves a cutter on the left side that engraves a brass mat that goes into the casting machine. So I could take any design that I could come up with, make a pattern, engrave a mat, and then go back out to the shop and put it in his machines and cast my own designs in brand new type. And 
I made this little mushroom border. It has a, a stretcher piece, mm -hmm. little, two little cross mushrooms, and then a little mushroom corner that goes with it so you can do a full border on a card. Beginner's luck, complete beginner's luck. It turned out really well, uh, but I was just instantly hooked on that part. Um, being able to cast the fonts is also amazing because I could make whatever I needed, but just the fact that I could create designs that have never existed in type before, print with them, and then also offer them to other people to print with was just amazing, blew my mind. So I've been going back to gyms ever since and uh, have goals of setting up my own type foundry and carrying on his legacy. That's awesome. Yeah, I think um, I think the the mushroom border is actually how we first kind of became aware of you. So mm -hmm. we were at the printer's fair last fall. And um, I think you had maybe sent in like one of your little prints for the mushroom border to the APA. Mm -hmm. And so Troy mm -hmm. Groves was there with an APA booth. And he was like, Oh, look, at you guys will love these. And we were like, Troy, you're absolutely correct. We are obsessed. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I still have it somewhere. I have them taped up to my studio wall because they are so beautiful. Like the oh. borders you design are so beautiful. And Troy was 100% spot on. He was like, you, for, you're going to love these and you're going to love Val. And you ladies need to t all talk to each other. And, yes. and he couldn't be more right. And I'm sure Troy will listen to this episode. So uh, thanks, Troy, for the uh, long-winded introduction or long-awaited long introduction, I should say. Um, yeah, he sent yeah. me the episode where you guys were at the museum and he was yeah. like, you got to listen. This is like, oh, I've heard of that podcast. I've listened to a couple. And I was like, oh, wait, they're talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was, I think, I think that was the first time we had really kind of learned, you know, what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And um like you, I think you said it the best way is like creating something that's never been in type before. Um, and I think that's been like the most fun part about all of this whole podcast letterpress journey is like watching, you know, women, especially, but younger people just take on this craft and make it their own, you know, so it's, it's been really fun to see. And I think the little, you know, ornaments and borders and things you're creating are a great example of that. Um, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. Like the, the, like the method and all of the history of typecasting is crucial to the letterpress story and mm -hmm. to see that you know every every year i'm sure there's less and less of it um you know with people retiring or or passing away who have been carrying all this knowledge around in their heads so being able to pursue that and um and learn it yourself is is i think really amazing and it seems like a yeah. bear is it a lot to learn <laughs> it, it is a lot the machines are pretty complex uh, yeah. they, they do vary in complexity. Uh, there are some that are, uh, like the composition caster, it's got millions of moving parts because it's actually moving the mat case around. So it's casting letters in order ready to print for you. So if you type on the keyboard or on the, um, the computer system, you type out your text, the caster spits that text out ready for you to put on the press pretty much. Awesome. Now, the ones I've been working with mostly are uh, Jim's Sorts Caster, which is a stripped down version of the composition caster machine, but you're just casting one letter at a time. So that's how I'm doing my ornaments. I put the mat in that machine and just cast a whole bunch of one thing. But I can also cast a font on that just by doing one letter at a time. So they do vary in complexity. Um, there are varying degrees of uh, scariness also. So the comp caster... <laughs> yeah. And the supercaster, like if they squirt, the hot metal is not really going to 
get too bad. Like it'll go away from you or kind of out at waist level. The Thompson, if you really mess up, that hot metal is coming straight for your chest. Oh my gosh. I haven't worked on the Thompson very much. I'm much more comfortable on the Swordscaster and the Supercaster. Yeah, I don't blame you. Um, That's wild. So how many, like, um, I guess... I don't even know how you get into all of this. I mean, I know there's a lot of equipment, like the, the typecasters are generally much larger than presses, right? Uh, the Thompson's fairly compact. It would fit in a like two by two foot space. Um, okay. The Swordscaster, you know, would take up about as much space as a, a larger CNP. Okay. But you have to have power. Most of these take three phase power. You have to have uh, really good ventilation because you're melting the metal. Uh, you have to have all the other stuff. So in addition to just the machine, I have to have the holders to put the matrices in. I have to have the matrices to cast from if I'm not making them myself. For the composition caster, if you have the traditional keyboard setup, what it is is a big keyboard that has a a slot for key bars to go in it. And then you type on that, it punches a ribbon. The ribbon goes in the machine and tells it what to cast. So you have to have the keyboard setup and then a keyboard, a key bar system for every different face that you want to do. So all this stuff adds up. You have to have all the wedges, all these other things to make it work. Now, what's really cool is with the composition caster, um, a couple people have developed computer systems. Um, The one that most people are using now is called the Welliver interface and made by Bill Welliver. It is a pneumatic air system that hooks up to a um, circuit board that talks to your Mac. And you, he made a program that, kind of uh, makes it act like a mat case. So you, it, you tell it to go to A15 for a letter M or something, and the computer knows how to translate that into what would be the, uh, the tape that goes in the old machine, and it talks to it. So you, you hit start on your computer. It talks to the circuit board, which blows air through certain little tubes that go into the machine and the machine says, oh, you want me to cast an A? Okay, I've cast an A. And then it says, I'm ready for the next letter. The computer says the next letter is a P. And they talk back and forth and you have a Macintosh laptop running a comp caster from a hundred years ago. Oh, it's incredible. Cool. That is so, so cool. I've actually seen this setup on YouTube one day <laughs> during a deep dive and it is so fascinating. And then it's also really great because the Macintosh is like, also an ancient Macintosh in this YouTube video. So I'm like, this is just like a beautiful snapshot of technology and then being where we are today. It's just fascinating to see. Sounds like ingenuity to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like hundreds of years between this machine and this machine, and then only 30 years between this machine and the one that I'm watching it on right now. (laughs) It's just like the difference. Now I have that whole computer in my hand. Exactly. Maybe they'll figure out how to run it from your cell phone. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's that's, the next step, I suppose. Yeah, that's one of the only ways that this stuff is going to stay alive, though, because we're limited. We don't have the tape anymore. No one's making it. Uh, a lot of the keyboards and wedges and key bars have been scrapped. Um, so by figuring out how to run those comp casters from a computer, they've added years of longevity to that process um, just by being able to kind of convert that into a digital thing. You don't need all this other stuff. You can just use a computer. And as long yeah. as your comp caster is in good shape, you can run whatever you need to off of your Mac. 
That's yeah, amazing. that's a great point. You know, cutting out some of those materials that you that are harder to find or or no longer able to come by. That's that's a, a crucial step. You're, that's a good point. That's crazy. Yeah, I think that that kind of takes us back to um, <clears throat> how important it is for people to get passionate about typecasting, um, especially in these like younger generations, because it, you know materials are already running out and things are already being scrapped. So if we lose the interest altogether, it's just really easy for it to fall off on the wayside. And for all of these beautiful machines that were made to last forever and could last forever, just get scrapped. So having people like you who are really interested in keeping it alive and all of your um, colleagues who, you know, have mentored you or who are working alongside you or who, um, you know, are also out there globally, uh, you know, keeping this going, it's it's so crucial mm-hmm. to the conti- continuing the history of letterpress. Yeah, it really is. And a lot of the people doing this have been doing it for a long time and they are getting older. Uh, for example, Jim just turned 90 this past month. Uh, Congratulations past- to Jim. Yeah, yeah happily to Jim. <laughs> he's doing great. Um, but he is 90. He's been doing this for 40 years he's been printing for much longer but he's been doing typecasting just uh privately for 40 years um i was just working with rich hopkins he runs a little program called monotype university occasionally uh there were three students including myself and rich is 84 i think so a lot of these people are getting older and they are really looking for people to continue this on And it is a little bit intimidating to get into it. You need space, you need dedication, you need some mechanical aptitude because these machines are going to break and you're going to have to figure out how to fix them. Same thing with with your presses. You know, if something goes wrong, you have to figure out how to fix it. You can't just call the repairman most of the time. Yeah, right. You can, but you've got to figure out how to make things work because you can't just go to the store and buy a new part for that press or that casting machine. Yeah. So it is a lot of dedication to jump into this. And I, every so often I, I kind of step back and I'm like, what am I doing? I am getting something <laughs> really crazy here. <laughs> but then, you know, I get back into it. I start running the machine again. And I just know how important it is that this keeps going. And I feel obligated to do it now uh, because I've learned so much that I can run some of these machines I feel like I have to, to keep this alive. And you're right about, you know, younger people needing to get involved. I'm probably the youngest, except for maybe two other people in this. And the American Typecasting Fellowship, which is the group of people who kind of join together to support each other, trade materials, trade parts, fix parts. It can't be more than 50 people in the world. And especially with engraving mats, I can't think of more than six or seven people in the world who are doing it, who have the knowledge and the tools to do it. So continuing this and growing it so that it doesn't disappear completely is really important and really crucial in the next decade, especially. So if anybody out there is interested in typecasting and you want to learn it, please, please, please learn as much as you can. Otherwise, it's just going to disappear. Yeah, this is this is your call to action, listeners. If you yeah. are remotely interested and passionate about metal type, this is your chance. Um, even and if you you're know, only it sounds... just a little interested, um, yeah. sorry to cut you off, but even if you just have a passing interest in it, this is part of your craft if you're a printer. And yeah. even if you just take the time to understand how it works, 
that will help in some way to keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, the process, I think also like the appreciation for the process encourages people to continue learning about it or keep purchasing new type to keep these people who Mm -hmm. are making type in business, that kind of thing. There are, you know, aside from learning to cast type yourself and getting yourself a little casting machine, um, you could just support these, these type foundries as well. You know, that's, (laughs) that's next step. Um, You know, so there's a lot of ways you can kind of encourage this, this, uh, you know, legacy to keep, keep it continuing. So consider, consider that an option. Even um, taking like a class to expose, because I know a lot of people, their primary exposure is just through photopolymer plates. Mm -hmm. And um, like, I know that was my experience until I went down to the printing museum and, you know, was able to watch a demonstration and then also set like a little small line of type myself. I also got to watch one of these giant machines cast my company name into a little piece of a slug and you know having that actual in-person experience with these machines or with um setting small type it's it's an experience that you can hear about but when you do it 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 awakens something in you that you didn't even know was sleeping um (laughs) and it makes you even more passionate and like of course i still use photopolymer but through that process I really wanted to acquire a set of at least wood type, and I did. And now I really enjoy the days where I'm like, you know what? I have an idea for a card. I want to get it out. I'm going to use my wood type. I'm going to set it up. And sometimes I pair it with little doodles that I've done via photopolymer. And that combination of the two is really beautiful. So, um, you know, we encourage people to actually like get out and, you know, maybe find like a class or something or come on down to the print museum during the printer's fair in Los Angeles in October. Um, there's also many other events that go on across the whole country, but looking into those things and getting some hands-on experience. I mean, Mariah, when you and I were visiting, um, who were we visiting when we saw the really tiny, tiny newspaper being set? John Drew with his. We actually, were I have it right John here. Drew. Hold on, I literally have it. <laughs> he um, he prints the the mini Maynard News, and um, it's quite literally a teeny tiny newspaper. Um, and I think he said the smallest is like six point on this. Um, but yeah, he. <laughs> and we were there the day that they were like setting up one of the little ads in this tiny. Yeah, so tiny he even newspaper. does like these little these little advertisements wow. and things. It's very cute. Um, I've never seen type this small prior to yeah. that experience, and I was there was magnifying glasses involved. There was a lot of like tweezers, tiny <laughs> maneuvers happening, and it was really really fast i could have stayed there all day and watched them set as much of that newspaper as possible yeah, yeah i think yeah polymer is great but there's just something about the experience of doing that all by hand in the traditional way yeah yes and, and you know a lot yeah. of this i don't think it would still be here if people hadn't developed the methods for printing polymer because that really kept all this stuff alive people realized they could do wedding invitations and make a business but there's just something about handset type and the whole history of everything going back, uh, even beyond Gutenberg to the type in Korea, you know, mm-hmm. just the first people that figured out, oh, we can make this raised letter and press it into something and keep doing it over and over again. That's yeah. still what we're doing. Yeah. 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 That movable type, you know, is, is 
is way a precursor to even printing, uh, to, mm-hmm. to printing presses. Uh, you know, movable type was what was it like 800 AD or something like that? Like, I think so. Yeah. Uh, there was clay movable type and then brass in Korea and then all yeah. the, uh, the Gutenberg kind of standardizations of the exactly. alloy for it and everything. So we've made a lot of progress, but you know, I don't know how much farther we can really go. But now we have all these combinations with, you know, I'm using Illustrator to make my designs. I'm using a laser printer to print out my patterns. I make a polymer plate pattern that goes on the machine, but then it goes back to same thing. It's metal cast in a mold to make piece of printing type. So awesome. Using all these digital techniques to keep this crazy old art alive. It's it's just insane to think about. Yeah. Yeah, I'd actually love to talk through that because you know, one of the most beautiful things about the fact that you're creating new things in um, a cast type is that, you know, we're modernizing the uh, what's available on the market, right? Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to go and print something with a border, and nobody was doing this, you know, everything's a little dated, it's got a, you know, kind of it's a timestamp of its own because of just the artistic styles of that era but you're really breathing new life into the artwork that's available. So what is that process for you from like conception of, oh my gosh, I would love to make a border of mushrooms to actually having the type. Um, Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So really it does start with the idea. Uh, The mushroom border, I'm also very big into foraging and mushrooms. A lot of my artwork features mushrooms. And when Jim asked if I wanted to make something, I was like, oh, I should do a mushroom. That would be fun. So I sketched out a bunch of ideas, kind of, I looked a lot at the old specimen books. I love leafing through, you know, the specimens from 1900s. They're just amazing. And the way that they put the border pieces together, that did help inform how I set this up. So I had a corner piece that attached and my original mushroom borders, they do touch, which made some difficulties, but I looked at the way that they were kind of piecing these elements together to make a border and finalized my sketch. I took a picture of it with my phone, got it onto my computer and brought it into Illustrator, kind of cleaned things up and vectorized it. And then I had to size it so that it would fit on an 18 by 36 piece of type. Once I had everything kind of finalized, smoothed out and sized correctly, I printed out a film positive. So black image on the film. And then Jim has a little homemade um, polymer plate exposure unit. So it's basically a glass frame with a UV light. And I processed a little polymer plate by hand. It has a metal backing. So it has more of the solid backing on it than just the plastic. And that instead of like your printing plates where the text is raised up, the image was recessed into the plate. So it's a pattern. And that goes on the one side of the pantograph machine the prepared brass blank. I am making American flat display mats. So they're about an inch tall. They're about an eighth of an inch thick, uh, little flat mat that goes in the cutting side of the pantograph. It's locked in place. And then you have a tracer that goes into the pattern. So it goes down into the recessed part of the polymer. And then on the cutting side, there's a cutting bit. It's a four-sided steel cutting bit that Jim showed me how to make. He has another little machine 
you put the rod in and you grind it against a diamond grinder. And what we're aiming for is a four-sided cutter that has a three thousandths of an inch tip. So thinking in these really small increments uh, was all new to me. So you have to be really precise when you're doing this. So that cutter goes into the um, cutting side of the pantograph. The tracer goes into the pattern and you set the pantograph to the size difference. So I've, I forget what we did for that first one, but now I'm doing a five to one reduction. So my pattern is five times the size of my final piece of type. Wow. You set the machine. So you move the tracer, say you move the tracer an inch, the cutter's only going to move a fifth of an inch. So you can get those fine details for smaller type. So I trace the pattern in a couple of passes. So you don't cut the whole thing at once. You cut maybe 15 thousandths of an inch deep at first, lower everything, cut it again. Then you add your detail and do a final pass. And you're cutting down into the brass 50 thousandths of an inch for this particular machine. So everything has to be perfectly precise. It has to be perfectly flat, perfectly square, which I have some trouble with. (laughs) Um, And once you've finished engraving that mat, you finish it and then you can take it to the casting machine and put it in a special holder for the sorts caster and cast your first piece of type. And seeing that first piece come off was just like a miracle. I was looking at the mat and I was like, this looks kind of funny. Like it it doesn't look like it's going to work right. It doesn't. I can't see all the detail that I thought would be there. But once I cast the first piece of type, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is perfect. This is exactly what I envisioned. It's amazing. So we cranked out a whole bunch of the stretcher pieces and then we did the corner pieces. Admittedly, my first casting was a little bit crooked. Uh, the <laughs> didn't quite- As it should be, you know? Yeah, it, was, it was passable. Uh, yeah. But I've since I've been able to file them out so it's more straight, lines up better. And I've learned a lot in the successive designs that I've done. I've learned, you know, making the pattern as big as possible so I can get as much detail as I can, making sure all of my cutters are exactly the same size when I have to change between them. There's a lot of things that I'm learning to control for to get the best results, um, you know, making the piece of type look just like my original design. Yeah. Wow. That is so cool. <laughs> and so, um, now that you have, like, you have the, 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 is it the matrix, I guess, to create mm-hmm. the, to cast these. So you have the matrix for that and you can just whenever you need to create more of your mushroom border, right? Like that's the idea, yeah. which is so, it's so unlike what else, everything else we create in this world at the moment. Like, you know, you made the mold and now you can literally just forge the type whenever you need to. I think that is so amazing. Yeah, I did just cast another batch of it when I was at gyms this summer. So this uh, machine that I'm using and the the way the mats are made, they do have a bevel. So they all have to be dressed, which means running the piece of type across a file. So especially with the mushroom border, those two ends, they meet flush against them, uh, against each other when you set them in the stick. So that means those two ends, when I cast them, they stick out. So I have to rub every single piece of type against a file to smooth that little overhang off. Wow. So there's a lot more than just casting it. I have to finish it, which is why everyone who's waiting on front deco, I'm sorry, but I'm still finishing all of it <laughs> because I cast. She, she is 10, hand filing these for you. Okay. Settle down. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the foundries that were doing this commercially, they had ways around that, um, either driving punches into the mats, which was more traditional than engraving or taking a perfectly dressed piece of type and actually electro depositing a new mat with copper 
Mm. I have some friends that are looking into that for me. Um, Jim has done it. Rich Hopkins has done it. A lot of the people who were really into this in the 80s and 90s were figuring out how the foundries did this. But you can take a piece of type and grow a new matrix around it with copper in an electroplating bath. And a lot of foundries used to do this. They would buy type from a competitor. They would electro new mats, and then they would cast their own version of that type and sell it. Oh, funny. So there's a big history of this in uh, type founding. I love just... it. It's like the OG <laughs> yeah. Napster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but there's all these different processes that are kind of related to what I'm learning with engraving the mats. Like I could learn how to cut steel punches. Um, Stan Nelson is a printer who specializes in punch cutting, which is what uh, they would have been doing like back in Gutenberg's day. So you cut a steel punch that's a positive with the letter and then you actually drive it into the mat to make that relief. And then that goes in the caster. The engraving is a little bit newer. And then I know there are people who are using CNC machines to do the engraving. I was, yeah, thinking about that because we recently did um, an episode about sculpted embossing with Metal Magic. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like, how could we use CNCs to make the, you know, part of that process, you know, rather than making sure your bit is three thousandths of an inch, it could get even smaller. You know, I think there's gotta be, I mean, I'm sure there is a lot of possibilities out there with the technology that we have, but um, finding the right fit is the hard part, obviously. But yeah, it seems like there's gotta be, you know, some new developments that could apply. Mm -hmm. It's really fun to think about. Yeah. And there's a couple people who are looking into it. I know Bob McGill in Missouri, uh, he runs Sterling Type Foundry is doing that, but I looked into it just to see if I could buy cutting bits and not have to make my own bits, but I couldn't yeah. find it that were small enough. Yeah. So I'm stuck making my own three thousands. So there's definitely possibilities with even the newer digital technologies that we have. I just haven't gotten into that yet. There's also something neat about saying, you know, I engraved this by hand. I did all the steps of this. And that's something yeah. I've always connected to with yeah. my thing. I like carving my image. I like setting my type. I like making my own paper if I have the chance. And now I can make my own type and I can do every single part of that process and say, this book, I made this entire <clears throat> thing from start to finish. And that's so cool. Something about being able to say that and having that sense of accomplishment is incredible. Yeah, I can't and even imagine. Of, yeah, that sense of control <laughs> over the whole process too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, not that everything has to be perfect, but just to be able to say like, mm, no, I don't love that, or you know, this color is totally fine. Like, I, I, I can appreciate that. Like, no matter what part of the process you're in, you can make the final decision on like whether you're satisfied and ready to move to the next step. You know, it, it, which is truly unique. Right, That's you get awesome. complete control over everything. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of color. Um, how challenging is it to do two color borders? I haven't tried yet, but I have okay. plans to do it because the Franz Deco border that I made, that kind of geometric uh, feathery mm -hmm. looking one, yeah. there's these little dots on it. And I would love to do that as a two color border. That so awesome. I don't think it would be too hard because I could just set up uh, the pattern, engrave the first mat without the dots, swap in a new blank without moving anything else and engrave the dots. The tricky part would just be aligning everything on the caster because on the caster, you have to get the mat aligned with the piece of type itself. And that involves lots of dials and adjusting in your thinking in 10 thousandths of an inch this time by turning this dial, you move it one 10 thousandths of an inch to the left. So getting everything lined up might be the tricky part, but I definitely would like to try doing that two color border someday. So stay tuned. 
<laughs> yeah, I know I we've it. seen some and I'm like, man, it it just blows my mind because the typecasting machines that I've seen, I just my brain can't wrap around that tight of registration that I've seen in some of the printed borders. It's like to me it doesn't compute, but at the same time I know it does because it has happened. So <laughs> Yeah, these machines, they made them for precision. I and mean, you look at the caster, you can move that thing by a ten thousandth of an inch and it will make a difference. So the skill really lies in the alignment of the type and then in the skill of the printer. And you're looking at those old specimens with multiple colors. You know, they're printed on smooth coated paper. Your registration is perfect. Uh, you think about a Heidelberg windmill, you know, that keeps perfect registration every time. So you have to have all of your machines tuned up properly in order to get that tight registration. And, yeah. you know, that may not matter to everyone. If you're doing big wood type posters, it might not matter if things are off a little bit and that's totally fine. But if you want that really tight registration, you know, it's possible because people used to do it you know, by candlelight sometimes, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. as long as we're all taking care of our machines and, and working towards that precision, like there's no reason why you couldn't get that same precision on your presses too. Yeah. I also think like, you know, it's something that we, we take, like we forget when we work digitally so often is that like when you're setting type, you can add another piece of <laughs> spacing material, you know, like yeah. there is some yeah. manual physical manipulation you can do too. But um that we, I think we forget about because we're just so used to like, our plate is on there and that is mm -hmm. it. If it is off, it is off, you know? Um, yeah, that's that's really that's really fun. I can't wait to see <laughs> what design to come up with next. Um, the Franz design is beautiful. Um, was that meant to be, is that, does it make a border or is it more of a pattern? Like what is, I think it does make a border, doesn't it? It does. So the Franz Deco is actually based on a design that I saw in a specimen uh, from 1908. Um, Peter Behrens designed Behrens cursive as kind of a German script. And then he designed all these things to go with it, little border pieces, uh, design elements. And I saw a similar one to this kind of set solid as the cover of a book. So it made this beautiful feathery pattern and I redesigned it so that it would fit on a square. So you have kind of these two half pieces of like a feather. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I cast was that square. So you get both sides and set solid it looks beautiful you get just this overall pattern uh the little dots kind of lining up and then i was like oh well i could just cast each half of this and make a border so i did that as well and then i designed two new corner pieces to go with it so yeah. i started with just a simple square design and kind of expanded it from there uh, to make all the different things so you don't need a solid set square in the middle you can just use it as a border with the corner pieces awesome then the latest thing that I did is I took the corner pieces, which were previously 12 point quads and I cast them on 24 point quads. So I made cast them solid and they are gorgeous. I'm thrilled and I'll have proofs of those soon on my Instagram, but it's, I didn't even think about that when I designed this and it's just showing me how far I can kind of take that idea, see what I can do, you know, cast a million of them. And what else is going to happen when I start putting these things together? Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, I love the little corner pieces on those. It feels, it, it's so like French Nouveau or, you know, mm -hmm. it's just very like Art Deco and, and really fun. Um, yeah, I love those little corner pieces, particularly the little like, you know, they're kind of like little cups of leaves or something. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like a little heart. So those are my own complete design. The, the basic 
uh, border was kind of based more on that 1908 design originally. But the corner awesome. pieces are mine. So. <laughs> Perfect. We love um, And are you making wood type as well? I'm not making wood type. Um, I thought about it actually during the pandemic. I took a class with Ryan Malloy, an online class. I was like, oh, I could start making wood type. But then I went to gyms and I was like, no, 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 I'm going to make metal type instead. Stay focused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do a lot of wood cuts and sometimes I will carve type into my image, but yeah. I'm not making individual pieces of wood type right now. Yeah. I think that's um, very wise of you to pick pick one lane for a moment. Um, we all have a tendency. To focus. Yeah. We all have a tendency to want to do all the things, right? Um, yeah. That's, that's too real. We can relate. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you've done the mushroom border. You have done the uh, frond deco. I think I saw some snowflakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done quite a few different designs. I know I saw a couple of others, but what else? Um, do you have any like future plans? Any desires? Wish list items that you want to make next? It, yeah, it's hard to decide. This is another focus problem here. So there's so <laughs> many cool things. Like I'm looking through specimens and saying, oh, it'd be awesome to recreate that. Um, I did just work with Jen Farrell from Star Shaped Press on a super secret project. Um, She'll be sharing details about that soon, but it involved me engraving two mats and casting two new pieces of type for her. Awesome. So so follow Jen. Um, I'm also really interested in trying to cast from these foundry mats. Uh, So the Smithsonian Institution back in the late 80s, early 90s, they acquired from ATF the bulk of their foundry mats. So these are the mats that they use to cast type and previous foundries, they just bought everything and conglomerated. So there's mats from BBNS, from all these other type foundries. Uh, they weren't meant to go on the machines I'm using, but I have been working with people to try to figure out how to cast some of these mats because the Smithsonian decided that they no longer wanted them. And Mark from the printing museum actually acquired that entire collection and it's in the process of being packed up and moved out to the museum. Uh, he let me hold on to a couple um, to see if I could figure out how to cast them. And actually this past week, I was lucky enough to be at Monotype University with Rich Hopkins in West Virginia and said, hey, I have some foundry mats. Can we figure out how to cast these? Like, yes, we have done this before. So he actually also has some ATF mats and a special mat holder that he made. So these different type of mats can go in his supercaster. And I spent the week casting foundry mats that have to be 120 years old, making brand new type from these mats that just have not seen the light of day for a century. That is so cool. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to doing more of that. Yeah. Um, But then also working on my own new designs. I I really like the way these kind of modular border pieces are coming together. So I'm going to keep working on things that work with the Frond Deco maybe do some new patterns as well. It'd be fun to do another mushroom. People like it. Yeah. The mushrooms, I, they're just so unique. I mean, I think that's, mm-hmm. and also, you know, since you enjoy them and foraging and all of that, the nice connection, but it's just something so different than what's out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's awesome. I do think it's really interesting how like the Smithsonian, I can just imagine they have warehouses and, and museums in general, not exclusively them. Um, just all of this printing equipment is, you know, a historical piece. And it's like, oh, I just hope that they reach out to people like Mark and Mm -hmm. to those of us out there before they just scrap all of that stuff. You know, um, it's, it's scary to think about, but yeah, it's Mark 
Mark always has a great a great connection to share. <laughs> I do love yeah, that. Yeah, about him. he's he's been essential in saving a lot of this stuff. Yeah, um, absolutely. And all of my mentors, you know, they the Smithsonian bought a bunch of that stuff before ATF officially closed. But then when ATF did close, I think in '93, they had an auction, and all of the people that I know now who are casting, like Jim and Rich and Greg Walters. Other people, they went to the auction and they bought the machines, the mats, all the equipment that went with it. So private people have also been saving a lot of this stuff. And that's really important, too. But, you know, you think about uh, Greg Walters passing a year or two ago. He had the largest collection of these foundry casting machines, the Barthcasters, the foundry mats. And luckily, there are people that were working with him to preserve that. And the printing stewards is doing great work. They've acquired his collection. Um, it's all in safekeeping and they're going through to see what's there and see how they can keep it alive by having people come and work on it. So yeah. there are some really good efforts to preserve all of this, but we have to keep it going or, you know, somebody's just going to come across this warehouse and be like, what is all this trash and just scrap it. Take it to so, the metal scrapyard. Yeah. It's yeah. 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 Um, Speaking of scrapping metal, um, do you have just a giant bucket full of type that you're just uh, that you just get from people and hell boxes just get dumped into to be recast? <laughs> yeah, I've been collecting as much type as I can. Uh, yeah, so if anyone has any, they want to send my way. I'd be happy Perfect. to take it. I love but it. Um, it just gets recycled. So yeah, you can either melt it down first into ingots, or what Jim does is literally takes a ladle full of type and just dumps it in the pot, and you yeah. have new type from old type in 30 (laughs) seconds it's pretty incredible and it's infinitely reusable that was the whole idea with the monotype composition is you would cast your book print it and then melt that type down for your next project so you can keep reusing this stuff yeah yeah i definitely um you know so if you're listening and you have a, a box full of type that you just do not have it in you to sort um feel free to load up a USPS uh, flat rate box <laughs> and send yeah. it. <laughs> I would take any and all donations. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Jill, I do you have any it. other questions? I don't. I mean, I I think we talked about all the questions that we had, um, you know, like where you find your inspiration and all of that. It's. I think it would be really great to just say that we really appreciate everything that you're doing. Um, Troy was a hundred percent right when he said that we would be totally enthralled with your mission and your artwork. And, um, it's, it's really great to see someone who's willing to like also travel for this interest and like go to other places and be a part of these workshops. And we hope that your story, um, it certainly has inspired us and we hope that it inspires some of our listeners to, step out of their own studios and see how they could be a part of this mission too, because it's just so beautiful. It's beautiful to have metal type. It's great. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing quite like printing on type. I, um, I actually was this last weekend with John Drew at the uh, Minneapolis downtown street art festival. And he had his little street corner letterpress, a little cart with mm-hmm. a tiny tabletop press and a little show card press and, we had wood type and metal type and watching kids like their faces light up when they realized that like you put the paper down, you roll the thing and then it's printed. Like mm-hmm. just watching them go like, this is what are my parents making me do? And what is this guy trying <laughs> to make me do? And then they're like, oh, Whoa. you know, like watching that. I, I genuinely was like 
blown away by people's reaction to just pulling a little print, you know, like something super simple and just seeing the individual pieces of little type, you know, like they were Mm -hmm. just fascinated. And like, you know, I think that we who are in the letterpress industry in any format kind of get jaded or like, you know, get so used to seeing these things like, I'm constantly like dusting off my furniture when I have to lock up something new in my press and just like, oh yeah, well, then you think about like all of the history, all the dust has come from somewhere on this equipment. And, you know, every piece that I have has been collected from some barn somewhere in Minnesota or whatever. Like it's, there's a lot of history here and, uh, you know, you're doing a lot of really cool work to preserve that and to keep it going. Um, And the only way that there will be future generations of letterpress printers is if we all try to kind of keep this going. So um, I would love to ask you if you could kind of summarize if people are interested in uh, learning about casting type, you know, where would you send people to start um, as far as like resources, people who uh, maybe do workshops and classes, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you don't have any off the top of your head, we can, you know, follow up with you. Don't need to put you on the spot or anything, but um, yeah, I would love to give people some like, resources obviously there's youtube if you just are super curious about what this equipment looks like and what that kind of looks like in general the whole process um but beyond that i mean there's a lot of people i think you've mentioned quite a few who seem to be willing to educate which is really cool yeah um so yeah yeah there's a lot of great people um and they are really interested in keeping this stuff alive and they've taught me the importance of teaching people so yeah I would encourage people, uh, if you can go to our MNH, if you're in San Francisco, just to see things, um, check out the American Typecasting Fellowship online. If you just search for it, it should come up. There's not a lot of online presence, again, because a lot of these people are less mm-hmm. terminally online than some of us. Um, mm-hmm. But Rich Hopkins of Hill and Dale, uh, he is getting back into doing some more teaching. He kind of took a break for a while, but if you're serious about it, he will teach you. Uh, I just did a week long monotype view session with him. So he is a great resource and very willing to teach. Um, there's not a lot of places to really go to learn. And that's that's one of the problems. Uh, the Bixlers used to offer a workshop through Wells, but I don't know that they're doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. I would say if you know someone in your area who is casting type, just go talk to them and bug them and say, like, can I see this? Can you show me? Can you teach me a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, If you are looking for a new type, you know, tell the people you're buying it from how interested you are and how amazing it is. If you buy from Skyline, if you're going to buy from me, if you're going to buy from M&H, from Bob McGill, you know, if you are doing a book project and you want to use type, talk to the Bixlers. Uh, there's a really great site um, called Circuitous Root that is run by David McMillan. If you want a deep dive on any of these topics, uh, he has pages and pages and pages of very technical detail. But Circuitous Root is a great place to look for more of that really in-depth information. And you'll find links to active typecasters on there as well. Perfect. Um, I do know there's a list somewhere of active type foundries in the U.S. that may be linked on printing stewards, but I think if you Google it, you would find it. Perfect. And just talk to people. You know, a lot of these people who've been doing this are more than happy to just show you around, show you how things work if they think it might get you interested. So, Totally. I think I think there's a, a lot of 
lot of us printers are just solo in our garages or our studios or our basements mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, a couple of people ask the right questions and we'll talk for days on it. So yeah. <laughs> for sure. sometimes people just have to ask one question and we'll talk yeah. for days on it. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you can't get us to shut up about it. So exactly. Yeah. Which is why we're here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and for our listeners, uh, you know, we are going to be at the Printers Fair again in Carson, California this October, and they um, do some great demonstrations as well. So if you're in the Los Angeles or California area, um, definitely worth considering that. I think it's the 21st and 22nd of October this year. Um, and there are, you know, Center for Book Arts across the country, and there are type foundries in different ends of the, of the country as well. So um, it's worth it's worth reaching out to those people. Um, and, you know, we're always happy to kind of help direct, you know, if you tell us where you are and what you're interested in we'll hopefully find somebody to connect you with um through the podcast too so that's kind of the whole point here so yeah (laughs) Val it was so great having you on it's so nice to meet you and to hear more about your story in detail um it's it's truly inspirational yeah I'm glad to be able to share it with everybody. Uh, this is a relatively new part of my printing journey, and I've gotten so much support already. So it's really great to be able to kind of spread the word even more and reach more people. Awesome. Well, um, please uh, do a little shameless plug here and tell the people uh, you know, where to find you and what you offer and all of that. And then, um, yeah, we'll obviously include links to your Instagram and to your website in the show notes for our listeners. But um, tell, tell the people what you, what you have for them. <laughs> yeah, so you can find me at bowerbox.com. Uh, my website is for my press, Bowerbox Press. And if you're on Instagram, I'm always posting kind of behind the scenes, lots of videos of that caster running. I'm just at Bowerbox. And on YouTube, I've been posting some things as well. I have a talk about that process of making uh, the new matrices and casting. If you just search for my name, Val Lucas, on Instagram, you'll find, or on YouTube, you'll find me there. Perfect. Amazing. Well, I know what I'm watching tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. We love a good YouTube deep dive, so problem solved we got our we got our watching material (laughs) well that was truly delightful that was wonderful val was absolutely a delight to talk to um i've been following i don't i don't know if you follow her on instagram um i'm sure you yeah okay so you do so i saw like her like monotype university stuff from this last weekend and i was like "Ooh, excellent timing we're gonna we're gonna get to like ask how that went and find out more about it and um we yeah we she did not disappoint so yeah, Val is great. Um, incredibly wonderful of her to talk to us and share a little bit of her, you know, story and everything with us. And the process to me is just so interesting. Like, I know that's kind of, I feel like we say that a lot, <laughs> but it's true. I know, but this time it is very, very, very yeah, interesting. I mean, like even, even just the idea of the machine that they use that, um, the pantograph machine that can translate the pattern from a larger scale to a smaller scale to me is so incredibly fascinating because that is not how I thought that would be done. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. I did not think that that existed. I I don't know what I thought, but I definitely did not think about all of the like, thousands of an inch that are important in this process um you know i i think i just in my head like think 
oh, you just cast or like mold and then you fill the mold and you break it into pieces. Like I, I think I think that my brain just like oversimplified this whole process. Um, and, yeah. you know, I think massively massive part of keeping letterpress alive is appreciating all of those minute details and the like the idea that you cannot replicate letterpress or lead type in any other format like there's nothing in the world that prints like lead type does not even photopolymer um there's nothing in the world that you know can replicate those things um and that's why they need to be continued um Yeah. yeah And there's something so beautiful about being able to make adjustments um, live. Yeah. Like as you're like right before you print, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Um, There's been several times and this is mostly with the B2B work that I do. uh, I register or I set up the photopolymer plate. I run my first proof print. I'm trying to make sure that, you know, it's centered, everything straight to the page. And then I realized, like, hmm, this uh, section of this invitation is not centered to the rest of the invitation. Or the one time this client had these beautiful florals, three floral or four florals, one on each corner, and one of them was in a different location than the other three. And I don't know if that's intentional right off the bat, but it's one of those things where it's like, okay, the floral, I probably could have cut off and moved it. But if it's like sections of words, like you're getting kind of dicey in there with like splitting up plates and moving things around, like it may not be perfectly straight again when you do that. So you don't have that problem with type because you just like add in whatever you need to add in or move it over to center it or to justify it in a different direction. Um, You get to make those edits live and that is really satisfying. You don't have to like ditch a whole photopolymer plate and have another one made and wait three days. Yeah. I mean, just like you mentioned, being able to uh, have this idea for a card or for a design, just kind of kicking around in your head and being able to take type, set it, put it on the press, ink it up, print it, see how it turns out and then make adjustments if you don't like it or print a whole bunch if you do, you know, like that's the beauty of type and having type on hand and Um, That's something that you can't get from photopolymer plates. Like, yeah, I could certainly take, you know, my existing card designs and use bits and pieces from different ones to make something new. But um, it's entirely different to be able to just set, uh, you know, any phrase, any whatever uh, out of type whenever you need to. It's so satisfying. I kept thinking of this analogy and I didn't know if it was fully baked in my head, but I think now it is. But this is this entire precedent is based on the fact that Zach and I watch a lot of YouTube videos about converting classic cars into EVs. Yes, we do not own a classic car. So this is not something that we plan to do. But for some reason, we watch hours and hours of content on it anyway. There's this huge thing and there's a lot of people in the comments who are like, you know, you're destroying the classic car. There's nothing like driving a classic car, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I can't relate to that because I find classic cars to be ungodly annoying to drive. They are noisy. They smell. They're clunky to drive. It's like hard to get into the gears. I'm not a fan. But for people who are 
it is like a visceral part of driving. It is such a critical, like all of those little pieces are so critical to the driving experience. And to me, I can mentally now relate to them by being like, that's type. Setting type is like the classic yeah. car. And polymer plates are like the EV. You know yeah, what I there's, mean? there's Quick, no replicating. Fast. Yeah, there's no replicating the rumble of a classic, you know, hot rod or whatever in yeah. a modern car format. Um, yeah, I do think that's a good yeah. analogy. It is. And it's actually helped me because I'm like, these people are just idiots. <laughs> like, it makes sense to convert all these cars to EV. It just makes sense. But now I get it. It's like there is something extremely nostalgic but also something really important like if we completely erase all combustible combustion sorry if we completely erase all combustion engines from the face of the earth then that's a whole part of human history that's lost so you know you gotta preserve some of this stuff you gotta take care of it and hopefully more people join that cause because it's uh it's depleting and that's sad I think that you know letterpress in general has a lot of salvageability um there are so many people out there who want to learn to print who are learning to print um who are starting to acquire presses for the first time um but I think as far as like typecasting it's a lot less common um obviously uh, Val talks about some of those numbers you know just a couple dozen people in the you know in the world making type still so you know this is a specific Mm -hmm. part of the letterpress legacy that we need to all put effort into preserving whether that's choosing to purchase and work with some type for projects um whether that's you know donating to these organizations um or uh you know learning to cast type yourself and you know, learning from these people who have the knowledge, even if you aren't going to cast type, learning it and keeping that knowledge alive and being able to teach someone else somewhat someday, that alone is super helpful. Um, it's the knowledge that we can't afford to lose because the equipment will probably float around. Yeah. Um, it's that knowledge that we just can't afford to let it slip uh, slip slip through um, and and die. Um, Agreed. You know, so yeah. Because if you look at some of these machines, the typecasting machines, I mean. If you didn't have someone to tell you how to run it, you would spend, I feel like, years figuring out and probably a lot of injuries. I mean, yeah, there's only so much YouTube can teach us, right? So, (laughs) and also when it comes to like, I mean, how how often were we like afraid of something before we did it? You know, like leveling my platen took me years because I was like too nervous to like mess with it. Imagine hot metal, like you think of melted lead. And I know, I know in my brain, I've learned it doesn't actually have to be like insanely hot. It's not like you're casting like cast iron um but it's still you know it's right. still hot liquid metal um it's hot. yeah so it's yeah. you know there's all kinds of like i think scary factors in typecasting um and the equipment is intimidating um but yeah let's get some more women into typecasting let's get some more type foundries uh let's do it let's just <laughs> jillian and i can't do it all everybody let's all right so this is <laughs> this is our listeners call to action <laughs> Go learn to cast We're type. bringing you the information. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yes. So inspired by Val. So That's like awesome. in awe of what she's doing and also just obsessed with her designs uh, for her little borders and everything. I can't wait to see what the next ones are. And we will absolutely be following up with uh, with her on some on some details. And 
yeah, just looking forward to seeing what else she creates. And we're looking forward to hearing from you guys um, over on Instagram on the post that is for this episode. Let us know um, if you enjoyed it. Uh, Go say hi to Val. Make sure that you're following her over at Bowerbox um, on Instagram because she does post a lot of really interesting Mm -hmm. content. If you've liked what we've been talking about, there's great visuals over there. Um, and yeah, come chat with us about it. Let's talk about your experience with type, or if you want to get into it and you want a little help, let us know where you are and maybe we can connect you. Yeah. And if you are someone who knows how to cast type and want to teach, um, to, you know, younger generations to do the same, um, let's, let's start connecting people. Um, so feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or via email. And our email is at, is hello at hot off the press podcast.com. Um, and you can reach out to us via our website, which is hot off the press podcast.com, um, anytime. So yeah, we'd love to connect some people, uh, who are interested in type and typecasting and, uh, keep this industry alive. Yay. Thanks for tuning in everybody. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.